You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. Fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. Welcome to this review of After Earth, part of the binge movie aftertaste, M. Night Shyamalan Retrospective. This mission has reached a fourth criteria. Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning Mike Ganeri as they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work. It is right there, Katana. From that little-known e-weekly emission, The Sixth Sense, all the way through his new release, Old, coming out July 23rd, the boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood. Recognize your power. Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor's profession? This will be your creation. When did everything go wrong? I'm not a coward! You're the coward! And why the hell did Mike not see the sixth sense until this retrospective? It has found you. The answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Let's just hold course and hope I'm wrong. After Earth, released May 31st, 2013. Budget was $130 million. Box office $243.8 million. And this is directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Well, boys, it's happened. After his name was kind of swept under the carpet for The Last Airbender, and then his name was laughed off the screen when we had trailers for Devil show up on screen, he has now been summoned to do home movies for the Smith family. <laughs> Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, that's basically what we have here. This was a movie I had zero interest in, and the more PR I had seen about it, the more I resisted wanting to see it. This was the movie that pretty much turned me against Will Smith. I thought it was going to be for life, but one of the gentlemen on this podcast has really opened my eyes to a lot of good stuff that Will Smith has done in the uh, past 20 years or so, but this movie I had zero interest in. Mike, I'm assuming this was the first time you watched this movie? That is correct. You say you didn't have any interest in seeing this when it came out? I feel like Nobody did. Now, you mentioned it did gross. How much? It, it grossed some money. Right. Yeah. But that's just Will Smith. I mean, that's just someone shows up to the movie theater. They see that Will Smith's name is on a poster and they go, all right, that could be good. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's nothing about this mm-hmm. film that was necessarily appealing, I don't think. I just remember this coming in with so little fanfare. Yeah. Now, Matt, I'll get to you in a little bit, but let me uh, talk to Mike here. You know, it, it's funny that we're covering M. Night Shyamalan because it seems like he does so many genres that we haven't even covered with Mike before. Now, we talked about fantasy last podcast and how you felt about that before we went to Last Airbender, but how do you feel about science fiction? I love science fiction. Well, do you love really? Is, love is strong. I, I would say, yeah, I, some of my favorite films are uh, science fiction films. Um, yeah, so I'm, you're a Star Wars guy? You like Star Wars? Uh, I like Star Wars. I've, I've kind of been out on Star Wars for a very long time, but you know, it's hard to deny the, uh, the power and the potency of it in general. 
I, I'd say more. I'm, I, I like stuff that's kind of like 12 Monkeys. Um, okay. Yeah, okay. Planet of the Apes. Other things that don't have simians in the title. <laughs> but dystopian science fiction. Yeah, I do like dystopian science fiction. I, took, I remember I took a class on the city in science fiction when I was in grad school, and it was very, very much just the kind of shit I'm into. Metropolis, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, both the 56 version and the 78 version. I like that kind of stuff. Wow. Now, Matt, sir, what was your interest in After Earth when this was coming out? I had about as much interest in this movie as a... as getting a root canal. Mm-hmm. I was not even aware when I went to go see this in the movie theater because, as I mentioned for a tease, this was the first one I had seen in a theater. I remember when I sat down and, you know, you, you shut your phone off like you should if you're a decent human being. But when I saw Shyamalan's name, if it wasn't for the fact that the lights were about to dim, I would have ran out of that theater. Because, but yeah, this was not a movie I saw out of excitement. I saw it almost out of obligation because I see everything during the summer. Wow, that is not the right attitude to go into a movie in the theaters. Yeah, and as a result of what this meant, it was a Shyamalan movie, and at that point, I was way against Shyamalan. We also had the whole thing of this being, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but when this was coming out, wasn't this looked at as kind of Scientology propaganda? Oh, yeah, totally. Because Will Smith was a Scientologist, or his wife well, was. Well, right. I mean, it, it's always been kind of shady what, what exactly happened there, how closely they were involved in the Scientology world. And anytime Will Smith was ever asked about it, he'd always be like, ha-ha, yep. Or like, you know, they'd be like, so are you a Scientologist or not? He'd be like, ha-ha, good, next question. Like, you know, it would just be yeah. sort of like that. It's just like a lot of Will Smith charm, not really answering the question. Uh, I feel like you probably is a Scientologist, right? I mean, I feel like there's no reason not to deny that you're a Scientologist unless you are a Scientologist, you know? Mm-hmm. So that turned me off to this. I mean, Battlefield Earth is one of the craziest, stupidest science fiction movies ever. And it's one of those movies you just can't take your eyes off of. So in that aspect, it was like, uh, maybe I'll go see it. But then I look at the Smith family dynamic. And around this time, they were pushing Willow Smith out there to sing. She didn't want to sing. And they put this kid on screen and he did The Day of the Earth Stood Still and then The Karate Kid. And... Then they're throwing him on screen for this, and it's obvious. Jane did not want to be in this movie. No. There are stories of fights behind the scenes during this entire movie. There's also stories of basically Will Smith was pretty much a director on this movie, where, yeah, Shyamalan blocked everything, but Will Smith was the one who told his kid, okay, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this. And, you know, some aspects I'm like, look, He's a father. He kind of threw away a career, a pretty highly touted, very big box office star career to be a father. And in that, and then I was like, that's kind of cool. But when you're throwing your kids on screen and you're throwing your kids in front of people in the media, that turns you off in a heartbeat. And I just really, and all the press leading up to the release of this movie with these two talking, I was like, I'm done. I don't want any part of this. Mike, were you feeling that? Oh, yeah. This is around the time when it's just harder to be part of the Will Smith project. Just because he's starting to, he at this point, this is when he's starting to become Tom Cruise, but mm-hmm. without the parts of Tom Cruise that are really cool, like the commitment to yeah. the stunt work and working with sometimes with really interesting directors and things like that. Work and finding parts that are a good fit for you, which I think we will get into soon. Yeah, and so it becomes very like, I don't know if I need to just watch this dude's fucking two-hour ego trip again. It's like, he's good at what he does, but it, there's it's just like some stars get to that point where they're so famous that they almost they can't tell one yeah. a good decision from a bad decision. I feel like Robert Downey Jr. is kind of in that spot right now. Um, 
and maybe some other people you can link in. But so that's kind of what's going on with Will Smith at this time. And and obviously he sees this film as a kind of way to launch Jaden into more of an adult leading man type career, you know, sort of pass the torch. And um, well, uh, we'll we'll see if the rest of us think that's yeah. a successful passing or not. Although I think that America made its decision and Jaden also made his decision, I think. So to his credit. Well, not really to his credit because he did it in a really weird way. I mean, his tweets and such, his social media presence was for a while there very out there. He was a rebellious teenager is what he was. And he'd come out saying that the American education system's bad. If they didn't go to school, we'd be much smarter. Like he was getting really stupid there for a very long time. And he's calmed down since. I was not as objectively put off by the idea of them sharing the screen together because they had done it already with Pursuit of Happiness, and I actually think that movie's pretty decent. But there used to be a show on Animal Planet called I Shouldn't, either that or Discovery Channel called I Shouldn't Be Alive. And Will Smith was watching it and said, why don't I take this, add a science fiction component, and pour my son out in front of a camera? Checkbox one, checkbox two, and checkbox three. Well, well, originally what he had done was he had seen that show, and he originally just came up with the idea of a car crash where he's in a car crash and his son gets thrown out and his son has to do pretty much what Jaden does in this. I don't know whose idea it was. I don't know if it was Gary Witt's idea. I don't know if Smith came up with it later. All of a sudden, they were like, let's just set it a thousand years in the future. And then that's what we have here. It's such a like fundamental aspect of the film that it's almost like, I don't know if you can criticize it without just like completely throwing out the movie and be like, well, we're not talking about the movie, but it's right. They should have just made the movie about the car crash, right? I mean, that's sounds- absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's just getting rid of all of this accoutrement with all this emotional suppression and the animals and the physics of it. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, distracts from what should be uh, a potentially compelling film. Yeah. My theory was that uh, Will Smith saw his buddy Tom Cruise do a science fiction movie called Oblivion that summer and said, I want to do one of those too. And also indirectly make it about Scientology. Yeah, it's funny. You know what? We've gone about 12, 13 minutes in this conversation, and we haven't really mentioned the gentleman who this retrospective revolves around. And I find that to be very reflective of how this movie comes off, honestly. M. Night Shyamalan, this is a guy who was handpicked by Will Smith to direct this film. He had also picked Gary Whitta, who at that point had done The Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. He had written that film and has since gone on to do stuff for Rogue One. And So he's a working screenwriter, and he hired him to do up the script based off his idea. And M. Night Shyamalan came on. He rewrote it a bit. And all intents and purposes, he was a yes man for Will Smith. He was just a director, I think, as we get into this, I think mostly by name, because I don't see any of Shyamalan's signature in this at all. I can see some things. I think it's, there's more of him in it than in The Last Airbender. But he's definitely moved away from that kind of distinct Shyamalan artist thing. And yeah, it definitely sounds like a case where this was a movie that was being, if not ghost directed, then being sort of armchair directed, where he's mm. trying to direct the film and he's got a star who's, you know, at this point, maybe the biggest star in movies who's calling the shots. You know, he can if he wants to do something one way, that's the way it's going to be done. Shyamalan doesn't really have any juice at this point. He needs Will Smith. He needs a hit more than Will Smith needs him. Feels like Will Smith is doing this out of Philly loyalty. But yeah, I mean, this is a very weird point in Shyamalan's career. Uh, he had a bunch of flops in a row. He did Last Airbender, which also feels like an attempt to make a guaranteed hit, but it was not. And then this is like 
feels like even more of an attempt to make a guaranteed hit. And results are kind of mixed in the sense that, like, well, it made some money, but nobody attributed that to him. Nobody was particularly enthused about it. This was not a movie that people left the theater pumping their fists, like, yeah, after Earth. So it didn't seem to do a lot for him. Well, and that's one thing you got to look at, too, when you look at the results of this film. Because, I mean, let's look at everything before The Last Airbender. We said a lot of things about those movies, and man, there are some stinkers in that whole pile. But one thing we could not say is that it wasn't M. Night Shyamalan's film. They all had his signature. They were all his. They were all his ideas, his execution. This, he's got the directing credit, but it's not his anymore. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing for him because this thing did get completely razzed by critics. This thing was nominated for a ton of Razzies, but it was Will Smith and Jane Smith who took those wins. And Shyamalan was kind of left out in the dust. So in a way, if he had failed, he wasn't going to get derided for failing. But at the same time, he was going to get credit if even if it had succeeded. So it was kind of a good job for him to take at this time. But I'm not sure how many people it helped. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. You're right that they took more of a hit from it than mm-hmm. he did, really. Because nobody was... Part of this is just that he has made worse films than this, or, or more embarrassing films than this. Because those films embarrass him, personally. Because this one, he's not playing the fucking guy who writes the book that saved the universe or whatever. So you're right that he was sort of writing the Smith family, aiming for success. But they also took some of the flack that maybe could have otherwise gone to him. All right. So we start off, no passing credits getting ready for the action this time. This time we're in the action as credits don't just roll on by. We're also getting the flux of the film. There's a crash. Will Smith is getting flung outside the window. And we cut to Katai, Jaden Smith's character, laying outside the ship. And right away, guys, I have questions. Questions like, what the hell are these accents? <laughs> it's such an odd choice. I don't know if this is a Smith thing, if this is a Shyamalan thing. I don't know. The audience would be fine. Like, we really will. They don't have to have a future accent to, yeah. to, for us to believe that this is the future. Everyone's fine that Luke Skywalker doesn't have a made-up accent. That's mm-hmm. really cool with us. We don't care. You know what I mean? It's such a strange choice. It sounds like... I don't even know what they're trying to aim at, really. I mean, I don't even know if they're like trying to make it a blend of different things or not, but it doesn't work. Jaden is really kind of hamstrung by it, I think, uh, just by the virtue of not being that good of an actor. So Smith, or Will Smith, can get away with it a little bit more. But even then, it's still pretty just distracting. And it doesn't do what an accent should do in a film if you're using it, which is to set the tone and put you in the atmosphere that you're in. You're watching something that's set in Victorian London, and everyone's got Cockney accents. You imagine yourself in Victorian London. But if you watch something and the accents are bad, it takes you out of it. And you go, well, I'm just watching some shitty fucking movie. And that's kind of what happens here from the beginning. Not only are the accents unnecessary, for a science fiction movie, the world building of this futuristic society is remarkably bare bone. Yeah. Like Shyamalan, very little with exploring how he got to this point, how the society even functions. It just, Shyamalan's, as he proved last airbender, he's just out of his depth with this level of a world to play around. He should not be allowed to play in the sandbox anymore if he doesn't want to be. Have the producers drag his crying ass out of the sandbox. Yeah, and you know what? This was planned. The Big Trilogy, believe it or not. They Jesus had Christ. <laughs> yep, they had comics up, written up. They had tie-in novels. So they had stuff all planned out here. But we're not off to a good start here because, as we mentioned last movie and this movie, Shyamalan is just not good at world building at all. No, well, it's just he's better when things are 
small and intimate. And so having this be a space action movie kind of works across purposes because you're so right when you say that it's bare bones world building. It really, this feels like the emptiest science fiction universe I've seen in a long time, which I guess is better than him trying to do Last Airbender where there's too much going on. But it doesn't, it just doesn't work. I mean, you don't get a sense that you're watching anything that's really been thought out or fleshed out. It feels like something that was maybe written over a weekend. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm -hmm. there's no detail to it. We then get a Jaden voiceover talking about how he'd heard stories of Earth before we destroyed it with industry factories and such doing the job. So this is an environmental science fiction film? Is that now, what I'm getting out of this? Well, this is actually one area. This is where I think Shyamalan is appearing here. You see that starting certainly in Unbreakable with all of the talk about all the tragedies that have befallen the city that are all part of Sam Jackson's plan. Or you see that in The Village where everyone is reacting to their own personal tragedies, which are reflective of a very terrifying outside world and stuff like that. So you see that kind of idea. He definitely is interested in the concept of the contemporary world as being one that's falling apart. I mean, it's, you see it in happening, too. That's something he's into, whether you're talking about, you know, in the context of this film, we're talking about sort of over-industrialization or uh, globalization, global warming, overcrowding, whatever whatever you want to deal with. That's clearly something that he's interested in, is like, how do people deal with a world that's going wrong? But it doesn't work in this case because there's no world building to that. So we don't really get a sense of any of that making a difference. This seems like a society that's based on trauma and suppressing guilt, which I get from both Unbreakable and Signs, and certainly The Village with that third act reveal. So I think Shyamalan's fingerprints are actually on this movie. We get told, still in that horribly accented voice, that the Ranger Corps were founded over a thousand years ago as the global military effort was put into evacuating Earth. They would settle on Nova Prime, and aliens would release the Ursas, creatures created to destroy humans, and they were designed to smell fear in order to hunt them down. So then we're introduced to Cypher Rage. Fight for rage, baby. This fucking name. This reminded me of. What's that? This reminded me of. uh, This is such a specific. But do you guys remember that episode of The Simpsons where um, Milhouse is playing the video game and it's like really like in your face with how like fucking cool it wants to be? And there's the part where he has to put his initials or his uh, his name in, and he enters it and he's like, "Whoa, Thrill House!" and he puts it in, but it just says Thrill Ho. That because it's like only so much space. So that's kind of what a cipher rage feels like to me. It feels like something Millhouse would come up with when he's trying to put no. his name to. It sounds like a character that Will Smith would play in a black exploitation film. Yeah, it's like science fictiony too because it's like cipher. So it's like it's like he's yeah. like a, in Tron. I don't know. There's a character in Matrix called Cipher too. Well, everyone is, everyone is Matrix like. That's uh, true. Some sort of noun, you know. Everyone yeah. Is, yeah. We're told that Cypher Rage, played by Will Smith, is the savior of the world because, of course, he is. He's free of being fearful and invincible. By the way, all of this is told to us in under three minutes. So we are given all of this backstory in under three minutes. We cut to three days earlier. Cypher's son, Katai, is training and for some reason can run faster than anyone else. But immediately after, we're told that he doesn't excel on the field and is not qualified to be a ranger. Wouldn't Cypher be able to pull some strings in order to make this happen, much like the Smiths made him the lead in this film? 
Like, well, why? He wants to earn it, doesn't he? Uh, I don't know. He doesn't want his I, I, son it, to be some sort of fear-having wimp. True, but we're also told in, the, in that opening montage that Will Smith can ghost. So if Jaden is running faster than everybody else on this field, why is he still being looked at as an underling? I don't get it. He looks like he's excelling to me. He's got a fear. I think that's yeah. what's going on. It's odd. I mean, this is a film where it's a lot of space around whether someone's suppressing an emotion enough, which is not necessarily a great start for like a big audience-friendly blockbuster. You know what I mean? You know, if this is like a Todd Haynes film, then like, yeah, maybe we could see how people repress their emotions and stuff. But this is something that should not really be that kind of thing. It's a genre where things are well done if they're perceptible by the audience in very clear ways. And you don't want to be too obvious about it, but it should, it should be clear and direct and it should kind of hit you right in the heart or the gut or somewhere. Oh, boy. So, once again, it's very strange that we get this info dump, but yet there is no explicit montage at quote-unquote fieldwork. So, again, I'm left with a character that right away I find Katai entirely unsympathetic because he's whiny and... The way he talks to that commanding officer, who I swear to God only plays generals because it's the same guy from X Men First Class. That's all this fucking guy plays anymore. <laughs> Once you get to the crux of this actual movie, he doesn't give him any room to improvise. He says, "Do exactly what I fucking tell you to do." Granted, that survival instinct kicking in, but at the same time, it's inconsistent. We get the scene of Katai and Cipher, where Katai tells him that he wasn't promoted to ranger. So, Katai, like you said, Matt, this is where he's really starting to show how whiny he is. We're also told that after his next mission, Cypher is announcing his retirement, hoping to get his family back as a result. This feels like Will Smith kind of talking to his audience, right? Like, okay, after I'm done with this, I'm just going to go back to my family because my family needs me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a film that's very much about its stars. Mm-hmm. They might as well have had the E! True Hollywood Story logo. But my problem is that he should be playing it more like Denzel Washington in Fences. Make him like a really mean, not borderline abusive father, but I don't feel like he's as hard on him as he should be because Will Smith doesn't allow himself to play roles like that. Yeah, yeah. This should be like a Chris Cooper dad. Obviously, science fiction action blockbuster is not going to star Chris Cooper, but you know what I'm saying. Like, this should be, <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Right. This should be a guy who you want to see him get over himself. A guy who you want to see him get rid of his own narrow-minded kind of way of life and way of thinking and, and perception of his son. And if you see him as too sympathetic, if he's too heroic, and if he's too much played by a movie star with not enough pushback, then it just unbalances the film because Will Smith is more compelling than Jaden Smith. So as an audience, we kind of want him to be right, but he's not right, but he is. But it's like this film is really confused because it wants mm -hmm. to be a story about how this kid sort of overcomes low expectations of him, both by his father and by himself, and how he manages to achieve and, and in doing so saves his father, who is in theory the kind of superior warrior and everything. But it doesn't have the structure where the father actually is the antagonist, which is what this story should be. That's the problem with this kind of story is that if, if they're creating this, the idea of fear being the greatest obstacle or whatever, if it's a film that's about the conflict between these two family members and how 
their emotions relate to it, then the father has to be not the villain, but the antagonist. He has to be the person who is in some way overcome or their worldview is overcome and changed by the protagonist. But it doesn't really happen. This is such a confused film. It doesn't really know what it wants to say about emotions and fear and what it means to be capable of doing things. You know, it's so like I, I couldn't tell you at the end what they really want you to come away with. And I think that you're right when you say that it's it's the problem with Will Smith wanting to be too sympathetic, too heroic, too much of the movie star. Yeah, and it should also be said, too, that Will Smith, in the years following this movie, he has said that he took this failing at the box office pretty harsh. And he was wondering what the hell he did to not make his audience come to see this. Obviously, he didn't watch dailies. He was just taking this pretty harshly. And then he felt that for about, he said, like, in his exaggeration, about five minutes. And then he got the phone call that his dad had passed away. So it had pretty much had him wake up and think, you know what, where is my priorities at this point? And I think it was after this movie that I had started calming down on him because he had not put his kids out in the forefront anymore. And I think a lot of this can be attributed to how he treats his kid in this and how he took that news in the aftermath of this film failing. So Cypher tells Katai to pack his bags as he's coming with him on this mission. We meet Ranger, who has horribly green-screened missing eight legs. This was weird, seeing this. This, again, M. Night, stay away from the visual effects, please. Well, they're better like every time we... they're better. Well, that's true. We're then introduced to the fact that Katai is reading Moby Dick, something that almost like what's the white whale in this why is moby dick coming up in this what is the symbolism in this i know Shyamalan loves playing with symbolism and i know that we're going to see smith's daughter later on she's going to be reading the same thing but what does this have to do with the rest of the movie i think in a better version of this film that would be a sign that the will smith character is an ahab figure that he's somebody who has allowed his humanity to kind of be destroyed in his own kind of obsessive hunt. But I don't think that that's really communicated here. Whether that was the original intention or not, I don't know. That feels like what's going on here to me, or like that feels like maybe that's what they were aiming for, but it just got lost in the process. And so it's like hanging around as this like weird vestigial organ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way to fix that is you have the Ursa that they're transporting be the one that killed his daughter. Ah. That creates your real Moby Dick. That is his white whale. We then are getting horribly written flashbacks to a girl that we will learn is Katai's dead sister, played by Zoe Kravitz. Mm -hmm. And my God, did I wish she was in something directed by Michael Mann, because she is so wasted in this movie. I love Zoe Kravitz. When I see her in stuff like this, and then I see her, of course, in X-Men, she was used very well. But in this, my God, she's just terrible in this, and it's not her fault. Oh, really? I didn't think she was terrible in this. What did you find her to... I mean, I just thought she was kind of not present, really. I mean, I just think that that was kind of the issue. But what... what, Could you go into that? Oh, I didn't mean that she herself was terrible. I mean, just her character was terrible. Like, she, she's not used very well is what yeah, I meant. With yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. It's terrible that she's in this in this way, I guess. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Speaking of offspring of famous musicians oh. who put their yeah. kids oh, in yeah. movies. Yeah. Here's, here's a question. Why is Jada not playing the mother in this? I mean, I guess maybe they didn't want it to be too Smith family-y, but... Once you cast Will Smith and Jaden Smith as father and son, it's, and there is a mother character, why not go all the way? Not, nothing against Sophie Okonedo, who, who's a perfectly talented actor, and you know not, nothing against her at all, and she's fine here as far as the film allows her to do. I just think that's weird. I don't know. Maybe she didn't want to do it. Maybe she was off doing Jada stuff. I don't. She was ba- maybe making a Michael Mann movie at this point. I don't know. <laughs> she's off doing Jada stuff. I love that's your cop out for all yeah, all, I, all things I'm if not, they're not I'm around. Not <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> Four words. She read the script. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On a serious note, though, I think she had just been cast in Gotham and was going to start shooting on that. Because she was one of the main characters in the first season. And she does have a credit as a main producer on this thing, so it's not like she wasn't around. That feels like a Will Smith, like, let's get as many Smith names on this as we can, even if they're not doing anything. No, I don't know that for sure, but that's just what mm-hmm. it feels like to me. The ship gets stuck in an asteroid field, and it starts losing cabin pressure. They end up settling down on Earth, which is declared uninhabitable. This is when we get the scene from the trailer where Will Smith calms his son down as the ship starts coming apart and teaches him to breathe through a mask. But Will gets thrown out the window and Katai is there by himself. It would seem odd to knock your main blockbuster star out and have this kid carry the picture. But Mike, in essence, isn't that kind of the conflict of the movie? I mean, yeah, it's about learning how to be the movie star, learning how to be the big action hero and how the torch gets passed from one to the other. But it doesn't work because the person who's supposed to be the torch is being passed to is just not up for having the torch. And it's not a problem of his judgment being bad or anything like that. It's not that Jaden Smith seems to have character defects or anything. It's just he's not really an actor. I mean, he's just not. I mean, it's just it's the same thing as the Sofia Coppola thing where in in, in Godfather 3 where it's like she's in it. She's not good in it. It's not really her fault that she's not good in it. But at the same time, it's like if you put me in to play for the New York Jets, I wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be my fault that I was there. But I also wouldn't be good. You know what I mean? That would also be a problem in the strategy. So that's kind of what's going on here is it's like you can't blame him, but also he is the problem. You know what I'm saying? You open the door, so I got to kick it down like the Kool-Aid man. As a diehard New York Jets fan, I'm pretty sure you would not be the worst person on the field. (laughs) The other problem is that Will made the conscious decision to be as static and monotone as possible for this entire movie because what he lacks in quote-unquote acting range, which we've debated on numerous shows, he has almost an endless amount of charm. And by removing that, he really exposes himself by having a physical charisma beyond, hey, I'm cool. What kind of got into him in the past 10 years where he seems to want to be playing these roles more often, like these kind of you know emotionally withdrawn kind of stoic sort of figures. I mean, he did it in Gemini Man, uh, which is a film that could certainly use some more kind of characterization. He did it in um, Collateral Beauty. I mean, and and other things as well, where it seems like he almost doesn't want to be Will Smith, but without actually kind of breaking away from it in some ways. Now, I feel like he has stuff, stuff like Aladdin or doing another Bad Boys movie. Like, he's kind of getting a little bit of that back, but it did seem for a while that he was kind of just, like, not wanting to be charismatic or, or charming. He want, or, like, he wanted to be charismatic in a different way. He doesn't really have that kind of haunted, sort of stoic, quiet kind of quality and, and be compelling in that way. Someone like Liam Neeson can do that. So just like Liam Neeson couldn't do a Will Smith role, Will Smith kind of shouldn't sort of be doing the other kind of role, you know. I don't know if Liam Neeson is necessarily the best who I thought of. There's probably someone else who's a better fit for that. Clint Eastwood, I guess, in his prime, you know. But that's sort of what he's doing here, and it, does, it just doesn't really work. Now, he's not bad, I wouldn't say, but it's just like, it just, it's just not really successful. The thing is, I think instead of Liam Neeson, I compare him to... 
He doesn't have the Denzel factor because Denzel's played Shades of Grey characters like Man on Fire, Hell, most of his Tony Scott movies. Yeah, uh, I was like, almost all of them. Yeah, even in something like Book of Eli, which I love. Um, he plays a guy there who's not your archetypical hero, and he's kind of emotionless in that to a certain extent, but he's able to still radiate that Denzel swag, and I just don't think Will Smith has that ability. Now, maybe unfair to compare him to Denzel Washington, who's arguably one of the greatest actors of the last 30 years. But I think Denzel could have played this role. He definitely could have. M- merged the Book of Eli with Fences, and you could kind of get the, the story. Oh, my God. This movie, Denzel and John David Washington. Now, John David Washington's a lot older than uh, Jaden Smith, but you know what I'm saying? That could do it. Not Yeah. Or, yeah. I- I'm glad you guys mentioned this now because I, was, I had notes about it later on. But where is that Will Smith that we came to love so much? And Well, I should say America came to love. I wasn't a big fan <laughs> of his whole, you know, welcome to Earth kind of enthusiasm. But that is something this movie so desperately needs. You know, I can't believe I'm actually saying I want the Will, the old Will Smith back. But at this point, yeah, he's pent up and his legs are busted the, this, almost this entire movie. So it, there's no reason for him to be enthusiastic. But even like in the beginning scenes, why not endear us to him by at least turning on, as Matt calls it, that charm that he always had? It boggles my mind that he thinks he's this highly ranged actor. I, I don't know if it came from that nomination he got for Ali 12 years ago, but it seems like it's completely absent here, and this movie desperately needed it. He needed to either play classic Will Smith or finally play a, like Mike said, not a villain, but the clear antagonist of the movie from the human side, because there's the Ursa, which is technically the, the main villain of this piece. I mean, unless you want to count nepotism as <laughs> the biggest villain of all. <laughs> but I had a thought about Will Smith when I was watching this movie. I realized my favorite Will Smith movies, which I could count on one hand, are the ones where he has a really dependable co-star to play off of. I think the prime example is the first Men in Black movie, where oh, yeah. Tyler Lee Jones is just the perfect straight man and you know they balance each other each other so well and then you watch a movie like Hitch where Kevin James is just so one note and as a result Will Smith feels like he has to overcompensate here I don't know what the hell happened because he, he doesn't bring anything to this role and the only thing I can think of is just him standing behind the camera and going I'm gonna make my son an Oscar winning actor he needed yeah. to either be more charming and charismatic or if he wants to deliver the kind of performance he delivers here in that kind of tone the script needed to be different. The relationship between the audience and that character needed to be different. I feel like I kind of want to stick up for him a little bit here, even though he's not really good in this movie. I, but I do feel like I'm I'm a little higher on Will Smith than you guys are. So I just kind of I do kind of want to say that I do think that he's um, when he's in something like the original Men in Black, or I I don't like I don't think Independence Day is a good movie, but I think that he's extremely charming and compelling yeah. in that. Or Ali, I think, is a very strong performance. It's true that he does not have a lot of great films, actually, when you look at it. He's one of those people who you're like, oh, yeah, he's like a great movie star. And then you look at his filmography and you're like, I, Robot, Hancock. I actually like him in Hancock, but that movie sucks. But um, Well, he famously turned down The Matrix. So, I mean, he could have had at least three good ones on his resume then. Like, the biggest sign that Will Smith could not fully commit was when he was cast in Suicide Squad. Oh, yeah. Because I buy him having a connection with his daughter, because that's the character in the comics, but I I don't buy him as a freelance mercenary with a psychological death wish. Um, Did you guys ever see Gemini Man? Yeah, yeah. You hyped that up when we were doing Bad Boys, and I did. I took the pill, and I went and I watched it, and it's not bad, actually. No, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, it's 
extremely flawed film. Like, it's uh-huh. so obvious. There's no, there's no way to watch that movie and come away saying they did everything right. I, and I do think that actually as he's getting older, he maybe is getting a little bit better with this kind of character. Because he is playing that kind of character in Gemini Man. He's playing a very sort of haunted, mercenary-type character. And he's a little bit better at it. And he's good at playing the young Will Smith, too, in that movie. But anyways, very, very much uh, getting off on the Gemini Man tangent here. But, yeah. <laughs> we kind of have to go on tangents because I know. The, this movie is so bare-bones. Yeah. With the yeah. plot. It's like, it is straightforward to a vault. And if this was 1994, this movie would have been straightforward to video. And you know, the more I think about it too, it's just like, God damn, you turned down fucking Django to do this. You know, like, <laughs> oh, it's is just... that true? It, yeah. I know he turned down Django, but it was for this specifically? Well, it wasn't for this specific, but this is the same year. Right. Yeah, well, it would have been the same production schedule. So Cypher sends Katai into the ravaged planet Earth in order to retrieve the beacon needed or else they are going to die. In theory, I kind of like this concept. I just hate how it plays out, especially when Cypher says every single decision you make will be life or death. Again, this goes back to what you guys were just saying, the non-existent Fresh Prince enthusiasm. It could have been so needed here. Oh, well, boy. and this is also, I, I feel like I'm not the first person to make this observation, but he, this is the part where he's like, everything on this planet has evolved to be you know, hostile to human life. This place is unlivable and everything. And you, you see the film and it's like, no, not really. I mean, it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough couple yeah. of days for Jaden, but it's not like it's inhospitable to human life. It's just a rough day in the, in the forest. You know. Yeah, yeah you, rough you, you have to. It's it, 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 He says every decision you make will be life or death. What he fails to say is that I will make sure that every decision you make, you can only do if I fucking say so. Yeah. So and, and yeah, Mike's absolutely right. If you're gonna do this, I was really curious to see what Shyamalan was gonna do with a Earth that is uninhabitable for humans. What was nature gonna look like? And in a very weird scene that actually made me think about the Scientology propaganda, Cypher tells Katai to take a knee and take everything in. This was just bizarre to me. Uh, yeah, you can play a drinking game with the amount of times he says take a knee. Katai makes his way up the mountain and sees how some of Earth's wildlife are living. So Cypher tells Katai to reach the hot spots located along the journey in order to survive the environment. We get another flashback to Katai's sister, who once again brings Moby Dick into the picture. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile katai is going along the trail and his suit turns black meaning that there is impending danger he comes upon uh what is this a wolf slash baboon what is this thing that he comes upon and they look like the monkeys from the hunger games oh yeah they do yeah it's a good call this whole movie to me looks like the first hunger games movie. oh yeah you're right everybody actually how has nature evolved? The animals are just slightly bigger and a little bit more temperamental. That's fucking it. You're right. That is, it's the Hunger Games aesthetic. It's like that combination of like forest or, or, or jungle background with science fiction, futuristic type clothing, but not too science fiction-y. You know, things are a little more chrome than they are currently, but not yeah. too much, you know. It's the same wetsuits that they wear in the second yeah. Hunger Games movie. I think uh, Suzanne Collins should sue M. Night Shyamalan for plagiarism. <laughs> Sue M. Night Shyamalan for plagiarism? Would you really want something uh, that you wrote it. that he actually rewrote <laughs> to be on your resume? I don't think so. Well, a, lot, a lot of people have done it, Garrett, including current. I know. That's- so Katai can't help himself. He incites it. And here come a whole bunch more. So Katai <sighs> makes a run for it. Shyamalan is framing this action okay. I kind of like the chase as Katai makes it to the river to end the pursuit. But at this point, 
I've heard the name Katai in this movie more than I heard Carol Ann in the first Poltergeist movie. Every time I turn or, around, Wilson was saying, the Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to bring it back to Hunger Games. I'm just like, God damn, will you stop saying this kid's name? Let the action speak for itself, you know? But I think the action is okay in this movie. I'm not going to really ding the action that much. How do you guys think the action is here? Uh, it's fine. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the weird thing about this movie is that it just doesn't, it doesn't really work. And yet there's almost nothing in it that you can point to and say that's terrible. It, I, I think Jaden, I guess, is the worst part and he's the lead actor. So maybe, maybe that's the biggest issue. But it's, this, this is a film that's like, it's not embarrassing. It's not a film that has a lot of weird choices like, uh, like in Lady in the Water or, or the happening or something like that. This is a film that, like, for the most part, you like, you see what they're trying to do. There's a couple of odd choices. The accents are one of them. But, like, it just kind of doesn't really come together. And I guess if you had had a, a more compelling leading actor other than Jaden, then you might have something that does hold together, but you just don't have that here. You're exactly right. This movie is bad. Sorry, spoiler alert, in case you couldn't tell by the opening 30 seconds of this discussion. But it's not bewilderingly bad. Yeah. In the same way that something like Lady in the Water or The Happening is, where it's like, why did you make these choices? But it, and it's also not as sacrilegious as what he did to The Last Airbender. Or yeah. And the action is nowhere near as clunky as it was in that. But it's workmanlike directing, but the you know the action's great. And I, I this movie reminded me of something. There's certain cliches that I hate in movies. And one of mine in this movie, movie reminded me of how much I hate it. Is when you have a teenager in a movie who doesn't do what they're fucking told to do. And it, it's very simple instructions in this movie. It's be still, don't move. What is the first thing he does? He throws a rock at the animal. So again... It is impossible to like this main character. Katai's suit is back to white, but he cannot stand. He grabs the antitoxin, but he says that he cannot see, yet he injects the anecdote as instructed and just lies there while the antitoxin is working. At this point, guys, something came to mind. We're not seeing this father and son in the best light. After not pouncing on the success of the first Karate Kid remake, these two just floundered around until mommy and daddy came up with this star vehicle for their kid. Though if the Smith family is front and center getting all the Razzie nominations, then it would seem that, again, M. Night is kind of held blameless at this point, right? That's kind of the weird part of it is that, I guess by by sort of suborning his own very distinct personality as a director to this obvious sort of Will Smith, Jaden Smith project, he has kind of removed himself from both criticism and praise. And because this is a movie that mostly got criticism, he ends up coming out fine. It doesn't um, help him in any way, it seems like, but it doesn't hurt him either. And this is such a weird path that he's not taken since, too, either. You know, being a director for hire, you know, doing mm-hmm. a film that didn't originate with him. He has not done that before or since. I mean, Airbender, I guess, was that. But other than those two, he's not done it before or since. And I'm glad because I uh, think that... Uh, probably didn't like that, and I think that audiences didn't really like it either, so it kind of works out best for everyone. If M. Night Shyamalan's doing M. Night Shyamalan stuff. It, it was the ultimate low-risk, low-reward scenario, yeah. where this movie bombed, which it did. He could say, well, I was sort of coerced by Will Smith into a compromised vision. And if the movie did well, he could say, thanks to Will Smith, he saved my ass, I can get back to work. So I think regardless of how this movie turned out, he would have been beholden to the Smith family. And again, another Hunger Games comment, because there's a scene in the first Hunger Games movie that involves her being stung by Yellow Jacket, and she has to administer an antidote that makes her hallucinate. 
the more that we're talking about this, there are some serious parallels to that first fucking Hunger Games movie. Yeah. And you know what? To M. Night's credit, I want to give him a little bit of credit here. He could have just as easily come out in the press and uh, in the years following and said, you know what? Thanks to that damn Smith family. It was hard for me to get my next project funded. I had to work because, you know, I had to be holden to them and their wishes to make this kid a star. He never came out and said anything like that. He moved on to his next project, which we'll get into in a couple months. But I find that kind of admirable that he did not displace blame he did kind of take the blame when he was asked about it in later years so i mean we've said a lot about m knight's ego but i don't think we've ever taken his character into question and i think this says a lot about his character yeah it's weird he seems like he's an egomaniac but he's also not a jerk necessarily yeah. you know what i mean which is an interesting combination <laughs> um yeah. but did you guys ever see the Jaden karate kid i never saw it, it yeah he, he covered yeah. it on this very show but I, mm-hmm. I unfortunately was not on that. I will profess I've never seen it. it nope. You know, it, it's not bad. The thing about it is I hold that first Karate Kid up so high. And it was another thing where Jaden was kind of thrown up front and center. And he wanted to do this Karate Kid movie so bad because he loved the movie so much. And Jackie Chan was kind of stretching out and kind of doing more emotional stuff than what we've seen him before. And I think it's okay. But I think in the end, it's, it's kind of derivative because it, you know how it's going to end because you've seen that first movie and they're naming it after that first movie. So it didn't really feel like anything that was genuine, but it passes the time. It's not worth two and a half hours, but I will say the James Horner score and it's pretty good. That sounds like James Horner. Yeah. <laughs> Katai's suit is now black as he wakes up and Cypher tells him that he needs to get to the hot spot as Cypher himself treats his wounds. We get another flashback to Senshi. This is Will Smith's daughter's 19th birthday. Ty is told to take his next inhaler and then tells him that there are four vials that are left. Cypher tells Katai how he first ghost, and this monologue, minus the normal Smith enthusiasm, is just a dead-end street. I feel nothing with any of this. And, I, and we've said that in a lot of these Shyamalan movies where when people monologue, there's no feeling behind it. And when you have the, one of the most enthusiastic movie stars of all time give a monologue and there's no feeling behind it, there's something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> The next morning, we're told that Katai is at the midway checkpoint, and we see that a bunch of animals have been killed. He reaches the end of the water, which ends up being a cliff. Guys, we had almost zero good things to say about the effects in The Last Airbender. How do we feel M. Night does with effects in this movie? Uh, I, don't, I didn't have a problem with them. I mean, to me, they looked as good as the effects in most sort of movies, which I also usually think look fake, but it's just the kind of fake where you just go, all right, you know. You just flip the switch in your head that goes, I accept certain things that are computer-generated are apparently real in this circumstance, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have an issue there. It didn't look like Last Airbender, which looked like shit. I think that, um, I don't know exactly what, what the what the difference maybe was, because uh, in the past we have talked about how um, sometimes special effects in this film don't always look good. I think maybe at this point more that the studio is just so, making this kind of film is so standard for them that it, it's like autopilot at this point, making it reach a certain level of competence. Mm-hmm. Unless you Matt. make some kind of gradual leap forward, it's kind of redundant seeing certain backdrops over and over again. Yeah. Cypher learns that Katai actually has two vials left and then tells him to come back to the ship and abort the mission. We flash back to how his sister died at the hands of a creature, and we get a whole argument about how Katai's dad does not believe in him and how Cypher was not there for his sister, proclaiming him to be a coward. Oh, man. The acting in this... Again, I don't know if it's the script. I don't know if it's the idea. I don't know if this if it's because these two are fighting between each and every take. Again, I'm just not feeling it. No, I, I'm not feeling it either. The thing is, this movie should be very kind of 
emotionally compelling if yeah. done right, but it's just not, and that's a shame. Yeah. Katai makes the dive as an eagle flies from Lady in the Water to be in this world. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it's it if totally a story showed up. I was looking for a narf. Cleveland Pete. <laughs> We think the bird has killed him, but then we cut back to him, and he is now in the nest. We see an Ursa attack Katai, and then get a dose of slow motion to defeat him. I love this. Yes, this is real, boys. Um, he is using slow motion to kill this Katai. Oh, God, the, the dose of Snyder vision? Yeah. <laughs> The bird gets upset that its nest was destroyed, and we see some rangers who didn't fare too well and were hung. Predator style. This was kind of cool. He makes his way into a cave as Cypher sends a message to his wife that he has lost contact with his son. So now, Katai is pretty much on his own from this point. He wanders out as the bird circles above and then takes his second-to-last inhaler. He makes himself a raft and then starts rowing across the river as we get a conversation with the ghost of his sister. At this point, these random Zoe Kravitz sightings were getting kind of annoying. <laughs> She's used pretty poorly. <laughs> it reminds me of in the second Amazing Spider-Man movie when Dennis Leary's ghost just reappears yeah, several times. That's what this reminded me of because these shoehorns in sequences, they really don't offer much in the way of insight. And then when she turns into zombie mode, it's just a cheap jump scare. Like just all of it is a giant misfire. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like there's something to be there. Another Shyamalan kind of touch here is he very much likes films about people who are overcoming painful past, particularly family-related, and sometimes you see flashbacks from that and stuff. And so that's going on here, but I feel like it's not incorporated well, and I think that the structure of it where there's sort of action going on, but you flashback to these scenes, I think that that kind of actually sort of takes you out of the moment, which is not a good thing to sort of take you out from what should be a thrilling kind of chase action kind of picture. Katai gets up and makes his way across the cold forest and then collapses. We see him being dragged to a warmer spot by what else but the fucking bird. You know what I was getting flashbacks to at this point, Matt? With all the shots of his legs going through weeds and things, this was reminding me of the journey of Atreyu in The NeverEnding Story. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is more like NeverEnding Story too. There you go. <laughs> it's not quite on the level of the third one, but <laughs> it's not good. So, yeah, we speak about that in the archives, boy, people. Go back and check that out. We reviewed it a few years ago at this point. Gatai finds a piece of the plane, letting him know that he is close, and a view from the top of a tree confirms it, as there it is. Yet we still have a half hour of the movie left, so you know more conflict is imminent, guys. Gatai takes his last inhaler and sees that the thing they had caged in the ship has escaped. He finds another communicator to communicate with his father, and Cypher tells him that he is indeed in a black zone. He starts smashing things in the ship out of frustration, at the beacon not firing, and we get another scene of Cypher telling him to take a knee, and then says that he must fire the beacon from the mountain. So the final act of this movie is essentially about this kid finding a cell phone signal. That's, that's what we have. <laughs> and then Cypher says, unfortunately we have AT&T, no bars, you're fucking... <laughs> Well, there goes that endorsement. Mike, what were you feeling at this point? You're, we're at the climax now. Are you uh, feeling anything, or are you just kind of waiting for it to be over? Yeah, just basically waiting for it to be over. I wish, I feel like I've said that in the past couple episodes. I don't think that's on me, though. <laughs> so, no. But yeah, no. I mean, uh, I've, I've, I, there's a film that's going to be coming up in a few episodes that I, I like quite a bit. So 
I'm glad to be getting forward to this because I'm I'm certainly uh, uh, pretty bored at this point of the film, not of the series. I love talking to you guys, but yeah, at this point it's it's this thing where I'm I'm, I'm just waiting for the film to end. Really, I mean, it's like I want him to get the fucking cell phone signal and father and son have their meaningful moment, which they do have, and then you know we're out. No credits. Still, you yeah. yeah, right, exactly. But... You you've been bored for about the past four episodes. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> it was all downhill from happening. So Katai heads to the volcano as he's getting chased by the Ursa. He is tracked down and attacked and then falls into some water. You know what? It just now came to me, guys. This is another thing of Ammonites, right? He is big into water. Remember? It was the kryptonite in Unbreakable. It was Lady where in the, the Narfs. Yeah, the Narfs crashed and Lady in the Water. So there is some Ammonite in this that I didn't expect before. It is here where Katai has accepted death. And maybe drowning is a good idea, but he comes up and this creature, how would you guys describe this design? Matt, would this, does this look kind of Rancor-ish to you from Return of the Jedi? It's like a Rancor meets one of those Starship Troopers monsters. <sighs> nice. Because that's all I could think of during the opening, that info dump, because mm-hmm. they're rangers and shit. I half expected them to find the career in the wreckage of Casper Van Dien when they show up and that, when he finally finds that ship. How many movies can we reference in one fucking podcast? He keeps pursuing him, and the battle continues. Just as it's looking like all hope is lost, Katai grabs his weapon and kills the creature. He then grabs the beacon and sends the signal. The rescue team arrives and takes Cypher. Cypher salutes his son, and the two have a reunion in the control center, and I don't think I've ever seen a more soulless reunion in a movie. Yeah, it's... Yeah. I mean, we've spent the entire film trying to get these guys back together, and they get back together, and at this point, I'm just like, this feels so forced, and maybe it's because they fought probably five minutes before they shot him on the field. You almost don't even buy that they're father-son. Yeah! yeah. Uh, so this is all capped off with the dumb line, Dad, I want to work with Mom. Me too. <laughs> no, it's more and... like the... Uh... The, the porky pig. Dun, 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 dun. That's <laughs> no, no, I wanted it to end like an episode of MASH, which it almost does. No matter what happened in the episode, the last scene of MASH would be like some nice little moment with the gang, and then everyone's like laughing and smiling, and then, you know, produced by Larry Gelbard. Like, I would have loved that if it had said produced by Larry Gelbard. Oh, that is so glorious. All right, boys. That does it for After Earth, or as they call it on the site, After Earth. <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give After Earth? Matt, sir, you go ahead and go. Or After Earth, more like After Birth, because that's how Ooh. hackneyed this production is. You know, God knows I've hated some of these previous Shyamalan movies, and there's no way I can bring myself to say that this is a outright horrible movie in the same way that I, I reserve that for Lady in the Water or Last Airbender. But I will definitely say, of all of his bad movies, this is the one that feels, speaking of futuristic shit, the most autopilot job of his career. Given mm. the circumstances, it's pretty evident as to why, but as a science fiction escapade, it's incredibly banal and incredibly just lifeless with the creature design and the, the environments are so rudimentary. And with sci-fi, you're going to do something quote-unquote original, which this technically is because it's not based on pre-established property. I think you do have to do a certain amount of world building or really making it feel like he's in danger. I never get the sense that this kid's in any real danger. No. Part of that's because 
they don't throw enough obstacles at him. You know, I, I would compare, if you want to see this, this kind of movie done well to it without the sci-fi pastiche, watch All is Lost with Robert Redford, where that is like a hurricane of bad situation after bad situation. Or even something like B-movie schlock like The Shallows, where it's literally one thing gladly stranded on a buoy, but there's a shark that won't let her leave. I, I think those are the kind of movies they should have tried to emulate more, because as a survivalist story, there's no suspense. And as a Will Smith vehicle, it also sucks, because it, it, it's clear that Jaden, I don't think he will ever possess his father's charisma or screen presence. And I think it was for the best that he kind of did not pursue this kind of career even further. So, where does that bring me to the score? Because... Uh, I don't view this as bad as Lady in the Water or, or Last Airbender, and I don't think it's quite as good as The Village because there's some really great stuff in that. I still have a lot of four on that. It's not hateable by any means, but there's just not enough content here to really feel one way or the other about it. All right, a four from Mr. Goudreau. Mike, sir, this is your first time watching this film. What do you score this? And I'm assuming that you'll never watch it again. Hi. Uh, if I watch it again, I mean, something very strange happened. But, um, I mean, I think he really just said it all. I mean, that was a that was a great summing up of, like, where this film falls short and, you know, where it fits into his whole filmography. It makes me kind of realize that I maybe was underrating um, The Village, I think, because however long ago it was that I watched, there's still elements of that, say, in my mind. And then I watched this one last week, and it's almost entirely, like, you know what I'm saying? I... I I'm glad you had a summary. Let me put it that way. So in terms of like what makes something a good film, what makes something a bad film, like what's where do you rank things in terms of like what's better, what's worse? Um, I think this one, I think I'm going to give it a four as well because yeah, it's not as bad as the last Airbender. There's elements of it that are competently made, but it's also not good, and um, there's really not a lot that's interesting going on in it. So that's a four. It's kind of a weak four, but it's a four. You know, you guys were really harsh on The Last Airbender last week, and I decided to go five with that because I didn't think it was as bad as you guys said that it was. I don't think that this is that bad as well. I think this is on par with The Last Airbender. I think M. Night is just, he took this job because he needed the job. And like I said at the beginning of this podcast, he's doing the Smith family film movies right now, you know? And it, you're seeing a filmmaker completely out of his element with a huge epic science fiction movie, and you're seeing two stars who are fighting the entire time, a father and son, and everything is just so disjointed. I get zero feeling from this. I think the setup is good. The actual setup of where Jaden is and how he has to get there is fine. I think that's a good conflict. I don't like the execution of this because there's zero enthusiasm on the screen. We we have some creatures that, yeah, we get a little bit of backstory on. We get some ghosting. Okay, we I didn't even mention ghosting this entire podcast because it really doesn't figure into anything at all in this movie. Everything's just so disjointed and so out of place. And so I'm not going to settle on four. I'll go five, just same as Airbender. I think there's some pretty decent action in this. But I think when you see this kid just not want to be here, you are seeing this kid really not want to be on this set and it shows in his acting and sometimes I can kind of put that aside and you know I used to have a girlfriend who would get so upset because I would mention behind the scenes stuff and she would say I don't want to hear that because it doesn't affect anything that's on screen I think anybody can come into this movie and look at this kid and say yeah 
he didn't want to be here. So yeah, five out of 10. I think it's okay. I don't think it's, um, you know, as bad as what we've had in, in, in past podcasts. I don't think it's bad as Lady in the Water. I don't think it's bad as uh, The Village it might be on par with. So yeah, five out of 10 for me. Matt, sir, you know, we have put Mr. Ganeri through torture the past month. What do you say we kind of give him a little bit of a break and go back to being gearheads and talking about cars? And Mike, you, sir, will be taking a month off as we talk Fast and Furious. But let me just ask you, Mike, we're at pretty much the point where Shyamalan's going to be in big need of a comeback. And he will have a comeback in the next movie. The next movie is rather successful. It's called The Visit. How are you feeling so far as we're knee deep in this retrospective and we're coming down the home stretch? Well, I'm having a fun time doing it. It's, it's, it's a fun experience. You know, and I, I like, uh, I hate Letterboxd, uh, but I've been logging my viewings this year on Letterboxd and uh, I'm looking forward to at the end of the year it's saying your most viewed director is M. Night Shyamalan. Your most viewed actor is M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> now and, you really dug yourself into a hole. Yeah, and oh, uh, so I'm, I'm just looking forward to uh, going through the rest of these and I I'm glad that I've seen the ones that I've seen. I'm glad that I have sort of the vocabulary now and the experience to sort of talk about Shyamalan and put him in a larger context. And I think he's a very interesting figure. So even with the films that I don't, did not like at all, um, I still think as part of a whole experience, it's been worthwhile. And we've gotten some great feedback on this series. So you brought your A-game, sir, and we appreciate it. But we're going to give Mike a month off as a result. Matt, I will see you next week when we talk Fast and Furious. So until next week, there's a podcast outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Thanks, guys. says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. The Binge Movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Voice narration done by Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods.
Reggie, just keep looking in his eyes! Keep looking in his eyes! Edited by Garrett. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. Send ships, drop those things. There's, um, there's lots of visual tension. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear. guys on this lovely piece of cinema yeah. I, I was ready to go for this as jaded smith was ready to be put in front of a camera <laughs> then you're not ready at all all right let's just go ahead and get going what no
So that turned me off to this. I mean, come on, After Earth is freaking trem- or not After Earth. Um, Last Airbender. Uh, what? No, what the fuck's the name of that movie that John Travolta did? God damn it. Oh, Battlefield Earth. Yeah. Battlefield okay. Earth. Yeah, yeah. Battlefield Earth. What? No. And they put this kid on screen, and he did that Keanu Reeves. Um, what the fuck's the name of that remake that he did? God, I'm sorry, guys. I'm so unprepared. Karate um, Kid. Huh? He did Karate oh. Kid. We'll check. Well, he okay. did Karate Kid, but what was the one he did you're, before that? You're thinking of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yes. The Day the Earth Stood Still. What? No. That feels like a Will Smith, like, let's get as many Smith names on this as we can, even if they're not doing anything. No, I don't know that for sure, but that's just mm-hmm. what it feels like to me. It's okay, Mike. I don't think Will Smith will come kick your ass. I'm pretty sure. I mean, Scientology, they got a long reach, you know? <laughs> they might be listening to the show. <laughs> so, I'm going to put the hashtag Scientology on this and see how long it takes. No, I'm just kidding. What? No. But at the same time, it's like... If you put me in to play for the New York Jets, I wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be my fault that I was there, but I also wouldn't be good. You know what I mean? That would also be a problem in the strategy. So that's kind of what's going on here. Is it's like you can't blame him, but also he is the problem. You know what I'm saying? You open the door, so I got to kick it down like the Kool-Aid man. As a diehard New York Jets fan, I'm pretty sure you would not be the worst person on the field. Given how fucking bad this team has been. Oh, man. I, I knew you would take the bait. I knew, I the knew bait. he would, too. Oh, that, that was why, that's why I knew as soon as he said it that you were just itching to fucking oh, yeah, say I, some kind I, of line. I had to bite my lip because I wanted him to finish his thought. I, I guess I would <laughs> add that. What? No. That's sort of what he's doing here, and it, does, it just doesn't really work. Now, he's not bad, I wouldn't say, but it's just like it just, it's just not really successful. Yeah, uh, Mike. What? M- hold on a second, Mike. Watch your mic because you keep bumping it again. Oh, yeah. oh sorry, my bad. Yeah, you're okay. You're okay. I, I was gonna ask that. I was wondering what that clicking sound was. Yeah. Um. Swing away, Meryl. Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.